I guess you could say it took me all my life to be diagnosed, right? Pain is so normalized for women. And how in the world could you compare your pain with another woman's pain? We just know that we're all in pain at some point. And because of that, we are taught to almost just grin and bear it, you know, and to be resilient and to just push on. And we do that at our own peril. And we do that with our diagnosis, you know, being pushed and kicked down the road, you know, years and years down the track, which is exactly what happened to me. And as a result, it was really hard for me to get pregnant. And as a result, I was in a hell of a lot of pain for all of my adult life. Sometimes you don't know. What that there is Shivani Gopal, an entrepreneur, a mother, a sister, daughter and friend, and a woman sharing a story so many others can relate to. A story of being dismissed and ignored, experiencing pain a result of endometriosis that ultimately continued undiagnosed for most of her adult life, despite repeated attempts to get answers. This is the Women's Health Project, a special podcast series created by Women's Agenda and supported by Organon, the recently launched pharmaceutical company dedicated to a better and healthier every day for every woman. Today in our first episode, we are going way back in time to try and determine how and where women's health has been sidelined, dismissed and ignored and why. Let's get stuck in. So hello and welcome to episode one of the Women's Health Project. My name is Angela Priestley. I'm the publisher and co-founder of Women's Agenda and I am recording this on the lands of the Camaragal people and I'd like to acknowledge their elders past, present and future as well as the traditional owners and continued custodians of country throughout Australia and wherever you're listening from. So through future episodes of this series, we'll be taking a look at more specific health areas, ranging from heart disease to different aspects of mental health and reproductive health and physical health, to try and outline how their impacts on women have been overlooked and ignored and dismissed for so long throughout history. In addition to all that, we also want to look at some of the more positive developments in some of the spaces we'll be covering to see how the future can be different in terms of women's pain and health and well-being so that women can be taken seriously. So in today's episode and via the conversations I'm about to share, my goal is to examine the historical context behind misogyny in healthcare, really, in medical research and more. I particularly wanted to learn more about how and where women have been sidelined. I wanted to understand why one in three women say they've had health concerns dismissed. I wanted to learn more about a history of data blindness and how this impacts all of us that comes when women are largely excluded from clinical trials. And I also wanted to highlight other gender gaps, like recent findings published in Harvard Business Review that found that we're basically missing out on decades of female-focused inventions, given that just 12.9% of biomedical patents in the US went to female inventors in 2020, which is an issue given that female inventors are significantly more likely to address female-focused health issues than their male inventor counterparts. I also wanted to examine the significant gaps that exist between different women, including shocking disparities in maternal death rates. So where do you start? It starts with the experiences of those who can share what they've gone through and who can share where their pain has been ignored. Voices that help kickstart the conversation that can then help us get to the voices that we are not actually hearing. And for about eight years before my diagnosis, I would go to my GPs or my doctors at university and say, look, I'm in loads of pain. And they would kind of look at me and go, "Mm, well, you're a young woman, you're probably hormonal or, you know, you probably drink too much. You could afford to lose some weight. Maybe you're pregnant. Maybe you've got gout. You know, it was all these things, accusations thrown at me, never refer for any diagnostic tests. 
never, you know, asked any questions about my medical history, just a general case of kind of being dismissed. And I think at that time in my 20s, I didn't understand that this was a gendered issue. I didn't understand that this was kind of the product of a system that tends to disregard the pain of women as something emotional or not particularly serious. So after the diagnosis... That's Eleanor Cleghorn. She's a historian based in the UK who has just published a definitive history of women's health, Unwell Women. She's speaking about being diagnosed with lupus shortly after the birth of her first child, an experience that inspired her to delve deeper into women's health and a diagnosis that came after years of attempting to get answers. I approached Eleanor because I felt her knowledge, research and background as a historian would be a great place to start. I've seen the history of women's health really described as the history of the world and yet it's not really something we learn about in history lessons in high school. We don't commemorate and put aside special days to remember women lost during childbirth or those who saw their underlying health conditions misdiagnosed as hysteria. As I'm recording this, I'm learning about Henrietta Lacks, an African-American woman whose cells led to multiple breakthroughs, including the polio vaccine and gene mapping. And yet it's taken until October 2021 for Henrietta Lacks to receive significant world attention and commemoration. Henrietta's cells were collected without her consent. She died in 1951 of cervical cancer and was buried in an unmarked grave. So on the 15th of October this year, the World Health Organization said that Henrietta was exploited, that what happened to her is wrong, and that she represented one of the many women of colour whose bodies have been misused by science. I quote, She placed her trust in the health system so she could receive treatment, but the system took something from her without her knowledge or consent. Getting to know Henrietta Lacks's name is significant in understanding women's health. But we also need to go beyond modern history and beyond the 1950s and actually way back further in time to get an understanding of how we got to where we are now. I spoke to Magdalena Simonis in her capacity as president of the Australian Federation of Medical Women. And she took the conversation back to the ancient Greeks. In terms of the aspects of women's health that have been neglected, well, I think it's every aspect of women's health that's been neglected over the over the generations. Why has this tendency to neglect women's health occurred? Why has it existed given that we're 50% of the population? And it's really, I think, it stems back to a history of enculturation of uh, women's issues being private and women's bodies being something that's either, well, if you think in terms of... Uh, religiosity or the, the sort of the you know the sort of that sort of sector it's 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 a it's a temptation and a risk and a threat a lot of that has been parked away historically and I think even if you go back to the days of Aristotle I mean even Aristotle and when you think about the ancient Greeks and his perception of women was that we were we served a biological function and that emphasis on our biological function has been what has defined us throughout all the generations through time. And that biological function has, has, was also deemed very similar to that in terms of the, the status in society as that of uh, property and also the animal kingdom. So in terms of that uh, status and equality, it hasn't existed. And it hasn't existed since ancient times. And 
across the ages that has been perpetuated. And then, of course, you have um, the, the, the sort of the religious influence uh, over culture and politics and science also and, and how that has evolved. And women's bodies were deemed unclean. A menstruating woman could not take communion or could not, we had to be separated from the men and you could, or some in some cultures, you can't attend church or you can't have sexual intercourse with your partner during the menstruation period because, or the menstrual period, because your body is deemed unclean. So if you look at historically where women's bodies have, have featured, we've either been the temptation the, the temptress, or we've either been the maternal childbearing object that is a possession of the male. And men don't have our body parts. So you have this ignorant sort of uh, uh, sector of the, of the population that dominates decisions, the drive for uh, control and the, and the, and the, continuous uh, leadership and control over the generations and you are stuck with the particular problem that we've inherited. So it hasn't been until only very recently with our own women's movements and with our own emancipation from those uh, paradigms that have really existed for generations that we've unraveled that particular mystery because that big question I think stems back to many 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 hundreds of generations it's not a recent thing mm. and we're just now uncovering the enormity of that and we've also started to realize how harmful it is for the whole of society not just for women because we do comprise 50 percent of the population so when you have for instance you know when you have uh, menstrual taboo um, and you don't inquire further as a, as a doctor about menstrual patterns and behaviour or you're, you're enculturated to think that painful periods that go for a long period of time are the norm for some women. Mm. If that's the culture you've inherited, and that is also what you're going to bring into your practice. And the field of medicine, let's submit it, has evolved from men primarily, not from women. And they have not interpreted uh, these signs and symptoms uh, in the way that women experience them. So Dr. Simona spoke about how these inequities in status have been perpetuated through the ages and how it's actually only pretty much recently that we've started to unravel these things and understand what's been missing in women's health. I also spoke to Amy Vassallo, who describes herself as being on a mission to end gender bias in health research as research fellow at the Global Women's Health Program at the George Institute. So I think um, the, the general community member would be surprised to know that many of the, the fundamentals about what we know about human biology and functioning is based on the 70 kilo white man, and that is the default human, and that's where a lot of our um, understanding has come from, and an assumption that that person is reflective of, of all people, and that much of the, the really fundamentals of health and medicine have been, been based on um, 
male animals in preclinical research and men in clinical research. That is starting to change now. We are having more equal recruitment to clinical trials, but much of that fundamental knowledge does have that bias. And then even in current research practice, there are um, intentional and unintentional exclusions from research, like the pregnancy example that we spoke about, but it could also be that the way that um, clinical trials are recruited to or organised is um, not particularly practical for, for example, people who are primary carers. So that could exclude women more than it excludes men. Mm. And recruitment to some clinical trials are not equal between men and women. And then the implications from those clinical trials are um, extrapolated to all people. Can this, how easily can this change? What, what's some of the work that the George Institute is trying to do to, to change this, particularly, I mean, imagine you're doing work internationally, but particularly here in Australia. Yes, particularly here in Australia. Yeah, so what we really advocate for from the George Institute um, is that this isn't just the responsibility of one group within the health and medical research sector to change. Um, while NHMRC, as our main source of research funding in Australia, is is leading the way in changing these practices, um, a lot of organisations have a part to play in advocating for change, but also guiding and informing and enforcing practice change. Um, so whether it's it's a funder or a research organisation or a journal or a clinical guideline developer um, or a medical society. Um, understanding awareness and practice change needs to happen across um, the health and medical research ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, okay. And one thing, I mean, you mentioned medical journals there and I, I, upon Googling your name before we spoke, I saw that I think you're quoted in, oh, that this is actually from the George Institute so the research that finds that only one in five editors-in-chief are leading medical journals uh, yeah. now, which, again, yeah. because that doesn't reflect journalism elsewhere or editors, um, writers elsewhere at all. So, um, yeah, that that's just – what impact do you think that potentially has? Absolutely. So there is also um, the bias in the medical research workforce that does um, – have an impact on medical research practice, medical research priorities, the types of research questions being asked. And there has been, at the moment, so while we have um, roughly equal proportions of men and women um, graduating with PhDs and at early career level entering the health and medical research sector, it's really at mid-career points that we see this um, scissor emerge with women's participation dropping off. And then at positions of leadership, for example, editors-in-chief of medical journals, we see a far greater representation of men in those positions of power, positions of leadership, decision-making capacity. Um, and there is also an interesting paper recently published that showed that publications, um, so when medical research is written up in a journal as a publication, if there is a woman um, senior author on that paper, they're much more likely to incorporate sex and gender into their research practice and also disaggregate their results. So that means to look at the mm. um, results of their research in men and in women and see if there are differences between them. Historian Eleanor Cleghorn 
says there's been a shift in how we talk about women's health in more recent years. And yes, she notes Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop as playing part of a role in that. She says it was around the launch of Goop in 2010 that we started to see more conversations around illness and happening in less medically official capacities, really happening online. And she says that those conversations flowed into more dialogues, more books, memoirs, films, people discussing illnesses on television and looking at chronic illness as a part of life. We also started to see celebrities discussing illness. You know, growing up, I always think about this, like growing up in the 90s, you know, being a kind of older teenager during like the girl power thing and like there wasn't space. We didn't talk about our pain and our weaknesses and our bodies it was very like that whole kind of thing was very shut down from our identity I feel as women in that time and then when I was diagnosed I mean it was the kind of the 2010 was the year that Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop was launched it felt like the beginnings of the <clears throat> commercialization of sort of thing conversations around illness and this language about, oh, doctors don't believe you. You know, we know the answers to your health. And I'm not really dissing Goop, but you know what I mean? It was this kind of co-opting of this sort of language around like, ooh, you know, the medical establishment isn't, you know, hasn't got your best interests at heart. And, you know, we'll listen to you. And it was really interesting the way that this felt like the beginning of a different conversation around like women I don't know if it was necessarily enabled by the wellness language but I think that definitely created a space in which it was more like empowering to talk about your pain and your illness and to kind of own it in a way that hadn't really happened before and now I think that's really shifted into all these different amazing dialogues books memoirs films even you know, talk of illness on TV, like it's shit, culture's really shifted. And I think that we understand that illness, especially chronic illness is a part of life and a part, often a really meaningful part of identity. I think we're beginning to rethink a lot of things around illness and disability Mm. in a much more positive sense. Um, So yeah, so I don't, I don't really credit Goop or wellness with starting those conversations but I think it definitely marked a shift in the visibility around some of these issues with health disparities with chronic illness with the kind of this sort of more invisible less attended to area of women's health so Mm. that's what it felt like and I feel like we're in that wave now we feel I feel like we're in this kind of yeah, third wave of health feminism, I would call it, because it's one that's, I feel like we're much more, it's the wave of health feminism where we've had the internet, right? An obvious, obvious thing to say, but it means that there's this opportunity for people to come together, even in just like community groups online, like on Instagram groups, to share information and resources, to create education, to distribute it. And I think that's what marks us out as different is it's much more kind of communal and much more led by, oh, this happened to me. Did it happen to you? And I think that those, that sort of speaking out, that conversation that grows and changes is is really important in how we sort of change and address issues in our health culture. 
Mm, yeah, I can definitely see that with with goof. I mean, I haven't I haven't tried steaming my vagina yet, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I can see how maybe, I mean, uh, I can see maybe unblocking communication or something that um, starting yeah. to use terms that people haven't been talking about. And definitely, because um, you might not want to talk about these things with your friends, but you can go and start. Eleanor Cleghorn believes that we're in the third wave of health feminism. Think pop star Lady Gaga, who's been open about her diagnosis with lupus. There's actress Amy Schumer, who recently shared to her millions of Instagram followers that she'd had her uterus and appendix removed due to endometriosis. And there's Serena Williams, who had her own childbirth scare and who used that experience to speak out in Vogue magazine about how black women are so often dismissed and ignored by medical care providers. She said she was no exception to that. That's episode one of the Women's Health Project. The series is produced by Alison Ho at Agenda Media, the publisher of Women's Agenda. The series is editorially independent, made possible thanks to the support of Organon. You can find out more from some of the different areas explored in this episode on our website. Thank you for listening.